welcome to Fast Asleep. Thank you for joining us today. We are staying with our cold theme because it's cold here. And because of that, we're turning once again to author Flannery O'Connor. You'll understand why in a minute when you hear the title. You know, she's really popular with fast asleep listeners, we've found. Our episodes 199 and 200, along with episodes 110 and 111, are where you'll find more O'Connor. It's a lot to squeeze one of her stories into just a single episode. So, like we've done before, today's story will be in two parts. And before we do it, we have to tell you, we at Fast Asleep feel very divided about Flannery O'Connor. She is an icon, and her work truly deserves all of its praise and all of its accolades. But in recent years, her personal writings have shown an ugly side of her. Some of her remarks undeniably are racist. Okay, but as many have said, her talent is undeniable as well. Her sardonic humor, her gothic southern characters just collect us up and drag us through outlandish escapades with all those character flaws unapologetically apparent. No matter how you feel about Ms. O'Connor herself, it's true, you can't deny her grasp for uh, intricate nuances of human nature. Okay, let's check out some of those nuances, shall we? Some of that grasping. (laughs) Deep breaths. Tuck in, everybody, for part one of Flannery O'Connor's The Enduring Chill. Asbury's train stopped so that he would get off exactly where his mother was standing, waiting to meet him. Her thin, spectacled face below him was bright with a wide smile that disappeared as she caught sight of him, bracing himself behind the conductor. The smile vanished so suddenly, the shocked look that replaced it was so complete that he realized for the first time that he must look as ill as he was. The sky was a chill gray and a startling white-gold sun like some strange potentate from the east was rising beyond the black woods that surrounded Timberboro. It cast a strange light over the single block of one-story brick and wooden shacks. Asbury felt that he was about to witness a majestic transformation that the flat roofs might at any moment turn into the mounting turrets of some exotic temple for a god he didn't know. Ah, The illusion lasted only a moment before his attention was drawn back to his mother. She had given a little cry. She looked aghast. (laughs) He was pleased that she should see death in his face at once. His mother, at the age of 60, was going to be introduced to reality. And he supposed that, well, if the experience didn't kill her, it would assist her in the process of growing up. He stepped down and greeted her. Oh, you don't look very well, she said, and gave him a long clinical stare. I don't feel like talking he said at once. I've had a bad trip. Mrs. Fox observed that his left eye was bloodshot. He was puffy and pale, and 
His hair had receded tragically for a boy of 25. The thin reddish wedge of hair left on top bored down in a point that, well, it seemed to lengthen his nose and give him an irritable expression that matched his tone of voice when he spoke to her. Well, it must have been cold up there, she said. But why don't you take your coat off? It's not cold down here. You don't have to tell me what the temperature is, he said in a high voice. I'm old enough to know when to take my coat off. The train glided silently away behind him, leaving a view of the twin blocks of dilapidated stores. Oh, he gazed after the aluminum speck disappearing into the woods. It seemed to him that his last connection with a larger world was vanishing forever. Then he turned and faced his mother grimly, irked that he had allowed himself, even for an instant, to see an imaginary temple in this collapsing country junction. He'd become entirely accustomed to the thought of death, but he had not become accustomed to the thought of death here. He had felt the end coming on for nearly four months, alone in his freezing flat, huddled under his two blankets and his overcoat and three thicknesses of the New York Times between, he had had a chill one night, followed by a violent sweat that left the sheets soaking and removed all doubt from his mind about his true condition. Before this, there had been a gradual slackening of his energy and vague, inconsistent aches and headaches. He had been absent so many days from his part-time job in the bookstore, well, that he lost it. Since then, he'd been living, or just barely so, on his savings, and these, oh, diminishing day by day, had been all he had between him and home. Now, there was nothing. He was here. Where's the car? He muttered. Oh, it's over yonder, his mother said. And your sister is asleep in the back because, well, I don't like to come out this early by myself. Yeah, there's no need to wake her up. Oh, no, he said. Let sleeping dogs lie. And he picked up his two bulging suitcases and started across the road with them. They were too heavy for him and by the time he reached the car, his mother saw that he was exhausted. He had never come home with two suitcases before. Ever since he'd gone away to college, he had come back every time with nothing but the necessities for a two-week stay, and with a wooden, resigned expression that said he was prepared to endure the visit for exactly 14 days. You've brought more than usual, she observed, but he did not answer. He opened the car door and hoisted the two bags in beside his sister's upturned feet, giving first the feet in Girl Scout shoes and then the rest of her a revolted look of recognition. She was packed into a black suit and had a white rag around her head with metal curlers sticking out from under the edges. Her eyes were closed and her mouth open. He and she had the same features, except that hers were bigger. She was eight years older than he was and was the principal of the county elementary school. 
he shut the door softly so she wouldn't wake up and then went around and got in the front seat and closed his eyes. His mother backed the car into the road and in a few minutes he felt it swerve into the highway. Then he opened his eyes. The road stretched between two open fields of yellow bitterweed. What do you think Timberboro has improved? His mother asked. This was her standard question, meant to be taken literally. Oh, it's still there, isn't it? He said in an ugly voice. Well, two of the stores have new fronts, she said. And then, with a sudden veracity, she said, You did well to come home where you can get a good doctor. I'll take you to see Dr. Block this afternoon. Oh, I am not, he said, trying to keep his voice from shaking. Going to Dr. Block this afternoon or ever. Don't you think if I'd wanted to go to a doctor, I'd have gone up there where they have some good ones? Don't you know they have better doctors in New York? Oh, now. He would take a personal interest in you, she said. None of those doctors up there would take a personal interest in you. I don't want him taking a personal interest in me. And then after a minute, staring out across a blurred purple-looking field, he said, what, What's wrong with me is way beyond block and his voice trailed off into a frayed sound, almost a sob. He could not, as his friend Getz had recommended, prepare to see it all as illusion, either what had gone before or the few weeks that were left to him. Now Getz was certain that death was nothing at all. Getz, whose whole face had always been purple splotched with a million indignations. Getz had returned from six months in Japan, as dirty as ever, but as bland as the Buddha himself. Getz took the news of Asbury's approaching end with a calm indifference. Quoting something or other, he said, Although the Bodhisattva leads an infinite number of creatures into nirvana, in reality there are neither any Bodhisattvas to do the leading, nor any creatures to be led. However, out of some feeling for his welfare, Getz had put forth $4.50 to take him to a lecture on Vedanta. It had been a waste of his money. While Getz had listened enthralled to the dark little man on the platform, Asbury's bored gaze had roved among the audience. It had passed over the heads of several girls in saris, past a Japanese youth, a blue-black man with a fez, and several girls who looked like secretaries. Finally, at the end of the row, it had rested on a lean, spectacled figure in black, a priest. The priest's expression was of a polite but strictly reserved interest. Asbury identified his own feelings immediately in the taciturn, ex superior expression. When the lecture was over, a few students met in Getz's flat, the priest among them, but he was equally reserved. He listened with a marked politeness to the discussion of Asbury's approaching death, but he said little. A girl in a sari remarked that self-fulfillment was out of the question since it meant salvation and the word was meaningless. Salvation, 
quote it gets, is the destruction of a simple prejudice, and no one is saved. And what do you say to that? Asbury asked the priest, and returned his reserved smile over the heads of the others. The borders of this smile seemed to touch on some icy clarity. There is, the priest said, a real probability of the new man, assisted, of course, he added brittily, by the third person of the Trinity. Oh, ridiculous, the girl in sorry said, but the priest only brushed her with his smile, which was slightly amused now. When he got up to leave, he silently handed Asbury a small card on which he had written his name, Ignatius Vogel, S.J., and an address. Perhaps Asbury thought now he should have used it, for the priest appealed to him as a man of the world, someone who would have understood the unique tragedy of his death a death whose meaning had been far beyond the twittering group around them. And how much more, much more, beyond block. What's wrong with me, he repeated to his mother, is way beyond block. His mother knew at once what he meant. He meant... He was going to have a nervous breakdown. She did not say a word. She did not say that this was precisely what she could have told him would happen. When people think they are smart, even when they are smart, there is nothing anybody else can say to make them see things straight. And with Asbury, the trouble was that in addition to being smart, he had an artistic temperament. Oh, she did not know where he got it from because his father, who was a lawyer and a businessman and a farmer and a politician, all rolled into one, had certainly had his feet on the ground. And she had certainly always had hers on it. She had managed, after he died, to get the two children through college and beyond. But she had observed that the more education they got, the less they could do. Their father had gone to a one-room schoolhouse through the eighth grade, and he could do anything. She could have told Asbury what would help him. She could have said, if you would get out in the sunshine, or if you would work for a month in the dairy, you'd be a different person. But she knew exactly how that suggestion would be received. He would be a nuisance in the dairy, but she would let him work in there if he wanted to. She had let him work there last year when he'd come home and was writing that play. He'd been writing a play about the help. Now why anybody would want to write a play about the help was beyond her. And he had said he wanted to work in the dairy with them and find out what their interests were. Well, their interests were in doing as little as they could get by with, as she could have told him, if anybody could have told him anything. Well, the help had put up with him, and he had learned to put the milkers on. Oh, and once he had washed all the cans, and she thought that once he had mixed feed. Oh, but then... A cow had kicked him, and he'd not gone back to the barn again. She knew that if he would get in there now, or get out and fix fences, or do any kind of work, real work, not writing, that he might avoid this nervous breakdown. Whatever happened to that play you were writing about the help? she asked. I am not writing plays, he said, and get this through your head. I am not working in any dairy. I am not getting out in the sunshine. I'm ill. 
I have a fever and chills and I'm dizzy. And all I want you to do is to leave me alone. Well, then if you are really ill, you should see Dr. Block. And I am not seeing Block, he finished and ground himself down in the seat and stared intensely in front of him. She turned into their driveway a red road that ran for a quarter of a mile through the two front pastures. The dry cows were on one side and the milk herd on the other. She slowed the car and then stopped altogether, her attention caught by a cow with a bad quarter. They haven't been attending to her, she said. Look at that bag. Asbury turned his head up abruptly in the opposite direction. Oh, but there was a small wall-eyed Guernsey watching him steadily, as if she sensed some bond between them. Oh, good God, he cried in an agonized voice. Can't we go on? It's six o'clock in the morning. Oh, yes, yes, his mother said and started the car quickly. Oh, What's that cry of deadly pain? His sister drawled from the back seat. Oh, yes, it's you, she said. Well, well, we have the artist with us again. How utterly, utterly. Oh, she had a decidedly nasal voice. He didn't answer her or turn his head. He had learned that much. Never answer her. Mary George, his mother said sharply, Asbury is sick. You leave him alone. Oh, well, what's wrong with him? Mary George asked. Oh, there's the house, his mother said, as if they were all blind but her. It rose on the crest of the hill, a white two-story farmhouse with a wide porch and pleasant columns. She always approached it with a feeling of pride, and she had said more than once to Asbury, You have a home here that, well, half those people up there would give their eye teeth for. She had been once to the terrible place he lived in New York. They had gone up five flights of dark stone steps, past open garbage cans on every landing to arrive finally at two damp rooms and a closet with a toilet in it. Oh, you wouldn't live like this at home, she muttered. No, he said with an ecstatic look. It wouldn't be possible. She supposed the truth was that she simply didn't understand how it felt to be sensitive, or how peculiar you were when you were an artist. Well, now his sister said he was not an artist, and that he had no talent, and that that was the trouble with him. But Mary George was not a happy girl herself. Asbury said she posed as an intellectual, but that her IQ couldn't be over 75, and that all she was really interested in was getting a man, but that no sensible man would finish a first look at her. She had tried to tell him that Mary George could be very attractive when she put her mind to it, and he had said that that much strain on her mind would break her down. If she were in any way attractive, he had said, she wouldn't now be principal of a county elementary school. And Mary George had said that if Asbury had had any talent, he would by now have published something. What had he ever published, she wanted to know. Oh, and for that matter, what had he ever written? Mrs. Fox had pointed out that he was only 25 years old and 
Mary George had said that the age most people published something at was 21, which made him exactly four years overdue. Mrs. Fox was not up on these things like that, but she suggested that he might be writing a very long book. Very long book, her eye, Mary George had said. He would do well if he came up with so much as a poem, and Mrs. Fox hoped it wasn't going to be just a poem. She pulled the car into the side drive, and a scattering of guineas exploded into the air and sailed screaming around the house. Home again, home again, jiggity-jig, she said. Oh, God, Asbury groaned. The artist arrives at the gas chamber, Mary George said in her nasal voice. He leaned out the door and got out, and forgetting his bags, he moved toward the front of the house as if he were in a daze. His sister got out and stood by the car door, squinting at his bent, unsteady figure. As she watched him go up the front steps, her mouth fell slack in her astonished face. Why, she said, there is something the matter with him. He, he looks a hundred years old. Didn't I tell you so? His mother hissed. Now, you keep your mouth shut and let him alone. He went into the house, pausing in the hall only long enough to see his pale, broken face glare at him for an instant from the pier mirror. Holding on to the banister, he pulled himself up the steep stairs, across the landing, and then up the shorter second flight and into his room, a large, open, airy room with a faded blue rug and white curtains freshly put up for his arrival. He looked at nothing but fell face down on his own bed. It was a narrow antique bed with a high ornamental headboard on which was carved a garlanded basket overflowing with wooden fruit. While he was still in New York, he had written a letter to his mother, which filled two notebooks. He did not mean it to be read until after his death. It was such a letter as Kafka had addressed to his father. Asbury's father hmm, had died twenty years ago, and Asbury considered this a great blessing. The old man, he felt sure, had been one of the courthouse gang, a rural worthy with a dirty finger in every pie, and he knew he would not have been able to stomach him. He'd read some of his correspondence and had been appalled by its stupidity. He knew, of course, that his mother would not understand the letter. Not at once. Her literal mind would require some time to discover the significance of it. But he thought she would be able to see that he forgave her for all she had done to him. For that matter, he supposed that she would realize what she had done to him only through the letter. He didn't think she was conscious of it at all. Her self-satisfaction itself was barely conscious, but because of the letter, she might experience a painful realization that this would be the only thing of value he had to leave her. If reading it would be painful to her, oh, writing, writing it had sometimes been unbearable for him. For in order to face her, he had had to 
face himself. I came here to escape the slave's atmosphere of home, he had written, to find freedom, to liberate my imagination, to take it like a hawk from its cage and set it whirling off into the widening gyre. Yeats, and what did I find? It was incapable of flight. It was some bird you had domesticated, sitting huffy in its pen, refusing to come out. Now the next words were underscored twice. I have no imagination. I have no talent. I can't create. I have nothing but the desire for these things. Why didn't you kill that too, woman? Why did you pinion me? Writing this, he had reached the pit of despair, and he thought that reading it, she would at least begin to sense his tragedy and her part in it. It was not that she had ever forced her way on him. Mm, that had never been necessary. Her way had simply been the air he breathed. And when at last he had found other air, he couldn't survive in it. He felt that even if she didn't understand at once, the letter would leave her with an enduring chill and perhaps in time lead her to see herself as she was. He had destroyed everything else he had ever written. His two lifeless novels, his half-dozen stationary plays, his prosy poems, his sketchy short stories, and kept only the two notebooks that contained the letter. They were in the black suitcase that his sister, huffing and blowing, was now dragging up the second flight of stairs. His mother was carrying the smaller bag and came on ahead. He turned over as she entered the room. Well, I'll open this and get out your things, she said, and you can go right to bed, and in a few minutes, I'll bring you breakfast. He sat up and said in a fretful voice, I don't want any breakfast, and I can open my own suitcase. Leave that alone. His sister arrived in the door, her face full of curiosity, and let the black bag fall with a thud over the door sill. Then she began to push it across the room with her foot until she was close enough to get a good look at him. Well, if I looked as bad as you do, she said, I'd go to the hospital. Her mother cut her eyes sharply at her, and she left. Then Mrs. Fox closed the door and came to the bed and sat down on it beside him. Now, this time, I want you to make a long visit and rest, she said. This visit, he said, will be permanent. Wonderful, she cried. Oh, you can have a little studio in your room, and in the mornings you can write plays, and in the afternoons you can help in the dairy. He turned a white wooden face to her. Close the binds and let me sleep, he said. When she was gone, he lay for some time, staring at the water stains on the gray walls. Descending from the top molding, long icicle shapes had been etched by leaks. And directly over his bed on the ceiling, another leak had made a fierce 
bird with spread wings. It had an icicle crosswise in its beak, and there were smaller icicles depending from its wings and tail. Ah, it had been there since his childhood and had always irritated him, sometimes had frightened him. He had often had the illusion that it was in motion and about to descend mysteriously and set that icicle on his head. He closed his eyes and thought, I won't have to look at it for many more days. And presently, he went to sleep. When he woke up in the afternoon, there was a pink, open-mouthed face hanging over him, and from two large, familiar ears on either side of it, the black tubes of blocks, stethoscope, extended down to his exposed chest. The doctor, seeing he was awake, made a face, rolled his eyes almost out of his head, and cried, Say, ah! Block was irresistible to children. For miles around, they vomited and went into fevers just to have a visit from him. Mrs. Fox was standing behind him, smiling radiantly. Here's Dr. Block, she said, as if she'd captured this angel on the rooftop and brought him in for her little boy. Get him out of here, Asbury muttered. He looked at the asinine face from what seemed like the bottom of a black hole. The doctor peered closer, wiggling his ears. Block was bald and had a round face as senseless as a baby's. Nothing about him indicated intelligence except two cold, clinical, nickel-colored eyes that hung with emotionless curiosity over whatever he looked at. You sure do look bad, Asbury, he murmured. He took the stethoscope off and dropped it in his bag. I don't know when I've seen anybody your age look as sorry as you do. What have you been doing to yourself? There was a continuous thud in the back of Asbury's head, as if his heart had got trapped in it and was fighting to get out. I didn't send for you, he said. Block put his hand on the glaring face and pulled the eyelid down and peered into it. You must have been on the bum up there, he said. He began to press his hand in the small of Asbury's back. I went up there once myself, he said, and saw exactly how little they had and came straight on back home. Open your mouth. Asbury opened it automatically, and the drill-like gaze swung over it and bore down. He snapped it shut, and in a wheezing, breathless voice, he said, If I'd wanted a doctor, I'd have stayed up there where I could have a good one. Asbury, his mother said. How long you been having the sore throat? Block asked. She sent for you, Asbury said. She can answer the questions. Asbury! his mother said. Block leaned over his bag and pulled out a rubber tube. He pushed Asbury's sleeve up and tied the tube around his upper arm. Then he took out a syringe and prepared to find the vein, humming a hymn as he pressed the needle in. Asbury lay with a rigid, outraged stare while the privacy of his blood was invaded by this idiot. Slowly, Lord, but sure, Block sang in a murmuring voice. Oh, slowly, Lord, but sure. When the syringe was full, he withdrew the needle. Blood, don't lie, 
he said. He poured it in a bottle and stopped it up and put the bottle in his bag. Asbury, he started. How long? Asbury sat up and thrust his thudding head forward and said, I didn't send for you. I'm not answering any questions. You're not my doctor. And what's wrong with me is way beyond you. Oh, well, now most things are beyond me, Block said. I haven't found anything yet that I thoroughly understood. And he sighed and got up. His eyes seemed to glitter at Asbury, as if from a great distance. Oh, now, he wouldn't act so ugly, Mrs. Fox explained, if he weren't really sick. And I want you to come back every day until you get him well. Asbury's eyes were a fierce, glaring violet. What's wrong with me is way beyond you, he repeated, and lay back down and closed his eyes until Block and his mother were gone. In the next few days, though he grew rapidly worse, his mind functioned with a terrible clarity. On the point of death, he found himself existing in a state of illumination that was totally out of keeping with the kind of talk he had to listen to from his mother. Oh, this was largely about cows with names like Daisy and Bessie Button and their intimate functions, their mastitis, and their screw worms, and their abortions. His mother insisted that in the middle of the day he get out and sit on the porch and enjoy the view. And as resistance was too much of a struggle, he dragged himself out and sat there in a rigid slouch his feet wrapped in an afghan and his hands gripped on the chair arms as if he were about to spring forward into the glaring china blue sky the lawn extended for a quarter of an acre down to a barbed wire fence that divided it from the front pasture in the middle of the day the dry cows rested there under a line of sweet gum trees. On the other side of the road were two hills with a pond between, and his mother could sit on the porch and watch the herd walk across the dam to the hill on the other side. The whole scene was rimmed by a wall of trees, which, at the time of day, he was forced to sit there was a washed-out blue that reminded him, sadly, of the helps faded overalls. He listened irritably while his mother detailed the faults of the help. Oh, those two are not stupid, she said. They know how to look after for themselves. Well, they need to, he muttered but there was no use to argue with her. Last year, he'd been writing a play about the help, and he'd wanted to be around them for a while to see how they really felt about their condition. But the two who worked for her had lost all their initiative over the years. They didn't talk. The one called Morgan was light brown, part Indian. The other older one, Randall, was very black and fat. When they said anything to him, it was as if they were speaking to an invisible body located to the right or left of where he actually was. And after two days working side by side with them, he felt he had not established rapport. He decided to try something bolder than talk. And one afternoon... As he was standing near Randall, watching him adjust a milker, he had quietly taken out his cigarettes and lit one. 
The man had stopped what he was doing and watched him. He waited until Asbury had taken two draws, and then he said, She don't allow no smoking in here. The other one approached and stood there, grinning. Well, I know it, Asbury said, and after a deliberate pause, he took the package and held it out first to Randall, who took one, and then to Morgan, who took one. He had then lit the cigarettes for them, himself, and the three of them had stood there, smoking. There were no sounds, but the steady click of the two milking machines and the occasional slap of a cow's tail against her side. It was one of those moments of communion when the difference between white and black is absorbed into nothing. Well, the next day, two cans of milk had been returned from the creamery because it had absorbed the odor of tobacco. He took the blame and told his mother that it was he and not the help who had been smoking. Mm, if you were doing it, they were doing it, she had said. Don't you think I know those two? She was incapable of thinking them innocent. But the experience had so exhilarated him that he had been determined to repeat it in some other way. The next afternoon, when he and Randall were in the milk house, pouring the fresh milk into the cans, he had picked up the jelly glass the help drank out of and, inspired, had poured himself a glass full of the warm milk and drained it down. Randall had stopped pouring and had remained half-bent over the can, watching him. She don't allow that, he said. That the thing, she don't allow. Asbury poured out another glassful and handed it to him. She don't allow it, he repeated. Listen, Asbury said hoarsely. The world is changing. There's no reason I shouldn't drink after you or you after me. She don't allow none of us to drink none of this here milk, Randall said. Asbury continued to hold the glass out to him. You took the cigarette, he said. Take the milk. It's not going to hurt my mother to lose two or three glasses of milk a day. We've got to think free if we want to live free. The other one had come up and was standing in the door. Don't want none of that milk, Randall said. Asbury swung round and held the glass out to Morgan. Here, boy, have a drink of this, he said. Morgan stared at him. Then his face took on a decided look of cunning. Well, I ain't seen you drink none of it yourself, he said. Asbury despised milk. The first warm glassful had turned his stomach. He drank half of what he was holding and handed the rest to the man who took it and gazed down inside the glass as if it contained some great mystery. And then he set it on the floor by the cooler. Well, don't you like milk? Asbury asked. Well, I likes it, but I ain't drinking none of that. Why? She don't allow it. Morgan said. Oh, my God! Asbury exploded. She, she, she! He had tried the same thing the next day, and the next, and the next, but he could not get them to drink the milk. A few afternoons later, when he was standing outside the milk house, about to go in, he heard Morgan ask, How come you let him drink that milk every day. Mm -hmm. What he do is him, Randall said. What I do is me. Hmm. How come he talks so ugly about his ma? Huh. She ain't whoop him enough when he was little, Randall said. 
the insufferableness of life at home had overcome him. And he had returned to New York two days early. So far as he was concerned, he had died there. And the question now was how long he could stand to linger here. He could have hastened his end, but suicide would not have been a victory. Death was coming to him legitimately as a justification, as a gift from life. That was his greatest triumph. Then, too, to the fine minds of the neighborhood, a suicide son would indicate a mother who had been a failure. And while this was the case, he had felt that it was a public embarrassment he could spare her. What she would learn from the letter would be a private revelation. He had sealed the notebooks in a manila envelope and had written on it to be opened only after the death of Asbury Porter Fox. He had put the envelope in the desk drawer in his room and locked it, and the key was in his pajama pocket until he could decide on a place to leave it. When they sat on the porch in the morning, his mother felt that, well, some of the time she should talk about subjects that were of interest to him. The third morning, she started in on his writing. Now, when you get well, she said, I think it would be nice if you wrote a book about down here. We need another good book like Gone with the Wind. We'll be back next week with the conclusion. Good night.